0: We invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 101, Psalm 101, as we'll gather around the word of the Lord together, Psalm 101. As you're turning, let me just say what a joy it is to be back in the pulpit with you. Uh, it's a great privilege to open up the word of God and to see uh, many familiar faces. Psalm 101, this is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. A Psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, Triune God of Heaven, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you invite us into your presence together as your people to lift up prayer and praise to you. We thank you that you call us on this day together as your covenant community to come and to read the Word and preach the Word, to sing the Word, pray the Word, and see the Word in the sacraments. We ask that this word, which we have now opened, inspired by your Holy Spirit, would now be illumined by him, that he would shine the light of this word deep into our hearts and minds, and that you would transform us, change the way we think and feel and live to be more like Jesus, in whose name we ask it, amen. Well, last time we were together, we walked up the Temple Mound. You remember it, don't you? Uh, That was back in 2016. We looked at Psalm 100, and we heard the glorious words, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. And now we turn the page. We go to the next Psalm, because... This psalm too, though not as famous, this psalm is inspired. This psalm is given by God for our comfort, our encouragement, our blessing, and our strength. These words are God-breathed. They're without error. And they are intended for your and my edification. And so here we gather to hear the Lord. But in a sense, in moving from Psalm 100 to Psalm 101, we move down from the temple mound and we go into the very throne room of the king. You see, Psalm 110 begins a set of ten psalms that begin with the great Davidic kingship to come and end with that same theme. And between the two, progressively give us a number of redemptive themes and then repeat them in mirror image on the back half. It's a whole set of things like pearls on a string bound together by the Davidic kingship and the glories of the coming promised King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of this is based upon the Davidic covenant back in the Old Testament. Where, in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, we heard these wonderful words. God said, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. And your house and of your kingdom, there will be no end. This was the promise made to David. But not made to David as a private person. It was made to David. David. As the one who pointed forward to Jesus Christ, our Lord, his greater Son. That God would send a king of David to live forever on the throne. That his reign would be eternal. As in the hallelujah chorus we hear, forever and ever and ever. And it goes on forever, doesn't it? God... Loves his people so much, he sends us the king that we need to save us. God promised him for us and for our salvation. You see, we're sinners by nature. That's a theological ditty that I can say and it rolls off my tongue and you go, okay, yeah, that's an evangelical thing, check that block. Oh, I mean it much more personally than that. Think about this morning when you woke up. Who is the first person that you saw looking back at you in the mirror? Two eyes, maybe not wide open in the first moment, but eventually getting there. A a little water. A a little hand cloth. a, A little toothpaste. A little comb. And you manage to make that person look better than they really are. You know it to be true. You see, by nature, we are sinners. We're sons of our first father, Adam. We're sons and daughters of our first mother, Eve. And so we are fallen and broken from the inside out. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us in that condition. He could have, you know. He didn't, leave the, he didn't rescue the angels. Those that fell, fell, and demons to this day, raging against the Lord they be. But for the sons of Abraham, for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, those that have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, he gathers them to himself, and he provides every means and occasion and ground and fruit of salvation for them. Everything they need for salvation in Christian living is provided. God here promised to give us what we need. We need someone to come save us. To gather us. To guard and protect us. To keep us safe and usher us safely through the rest of our lives. To that appointed day of the return of the king in power and glory. That's what he promises for you here, believer. And so in Psalm 101, we're on very holy ground. It's not just the burning bush that's holy ground. This is holy ground in Psalm 101. God is speaking of the future sending of his ideal king. God will see to it that He's both the Son of David on the one hand and the Son of God on the other. He is both at the same time the God-man. And God will save His people by Him and through Him who is this one mediator between God and man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's listen to the tune, to the words, to the glorious sound of Psalm 101 together. Now, first of all, even before we get to the first verse, we have to admit the text says a psalm of David. This psalm was written by David. It's in the original Hebrew Masoretic text. It's there for a reason. It's there to bear witness to the history and authorship background as so many of the psalms were. David wrote in this psalm under inspiration, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that the words that he sang, the words that were written, and the words that providentially have been protected and and delivered to us by God's kindness, those words describe something. And what they describe is an ideal, royal, private life in the first two verses. Here we get A couple of snapshots of what the king's life is like as a person. The person of this king. The first verse says, look at the king's covenant God. Our eyes are lifted to heaven as the king sings. He sings and points us to his heavenly father. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. You know, many years ago as a child, my grandparents lived in North Carolina and, and I would go stay with them a couple of weeks every year and I just loved it. You kids might ask your parents if you can do this. Don't just try this, but you can inquire. My grandmother let me stay in the shower as long as I wanted to. They had well water and she said, the water's free. Go at it. And so I would go in and years later I said to to Granny, why did you let me do that? Because, you know, the water was free but the electricity wasn't. And she said, oh, I did it for the concert. I said, what are you talking about? You sang at the top of your lungs. It was just great. (laughs) Here we hear the king singing at the top of his lungs. We hear... We hear him extolling the virtues of the steadfast love of God. That means the loving kindness of the Lord. The Hebrew word hesed, The covenant mercy of God. That's what he's extolling and, and glorifying in his praise. But then he mixes it together with something else. In the same breath he says, I will sing of steadfast love and... Of justice it's both and it's kind of sweet and sour the sweet covenant mercy of God but that's mixed with God's finger in the same bowl with his justice with his righteousness with his goodness and truth you see God's covenant of grace mercy is not opposite to his total righteousness and insistence upon that with anyone who would dwell in his presence. These two things are together at the center of the king's heart as he sings and praises the Lord. You know, there's a reason why this is brought up. And that's because of the basic principle. You know, we are what we worship, aren't we? We become what we adore. You remember, don't you? Be careful, little eyes, what you see and what you hear and what you do. What you love, you will become more and more and more of. That's the way we are as human beings made in the image of God. And here the Lord is showing us through the great king to come that we need to have our minds and our hearts and our lives stayed on thee, set on him. We need to look to the Lord our God and what he is like and his glorious nature that we might be brought into conformity with it by his grace. And then we read the second verse. We learn more of the internal character of this great king to come. Look at the king's covenant faithfulness we read in verse 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. And we think about that and we go, oh, that's good. You know, he's pondering. You know, we don't like to ponder a lot sometimes. We like to feel and think and tap our toe. But pondering is good. Chewing the cud. Meditating upon. Deeply thinking about. I had a dear colleague and mentor who used to behave in a very odd way in the library. He would get a good theological book and he would sit down in the library and he would look and read and read and read and then he would stop and he would turn in his seat and he would look out the window. And people always thought, well, is he tired of reading and taking a break? Oh no. He was reading and then he was praying. He was reading, and then he was meditating. He was reading, and he was asking the Lord to help him discern what was true and biblical and right about what had just been said to him in the text. Here we see that the covenant king has meditated on the nature of God, has sung, inspired praise to his glory, and that it's had an impact on him. It's changed him and conformed him to his image. He sees what the Lord likes and there, is like and therefore knows what He needs to be like. And we even hear Him throw up, a, throw up a prayer to heaven. Oh, when will you come to me? We're like that in our Christian lives, aren't we? There are times when we just lift our eyes to heaven and we think or even say out loud, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly after we've seen the wickedness and evil, the frustration and heartache in the world around us and in our own lives. He says these words next. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will walk with integrity from the inside out. That's amazing. Can you say that? Do you walk with absolute integrity of heart and life? I don't think so. Because this morning, the one looking back to you in the mirror didn't just have a hair out of place. There was a need for prayer of confession. There was a need for a turning away from self and turning to the Lord and trusting in Him again, new every morning. This one, this one is the only who has ever been so perfect about whom these words have been given. So we hear of his person and now the text turns and we read of his work. We hear David writing of an ideal pu- royal public life. That is, not just in who he is and what he's like, but also in how he behaves In how he rules and governs his kingdom. This king is to be adored. Verse 3 tells us to look at his justice. 3 and 4 say, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And this is a strong and emphatic denial of evil clinging to him and influencing him and twisting his official decisions and judgments as a king. No, he's going to follow the Lord. He is going to be like the Lord. He is going to carry out the Lord's word and will and command in his kingdom. You see, God is just. And so the king, this king, is just too. And he's just from the inside out. He doesn't tolerate idols. He doesn't tolerate longing or lusting after them. He even says those frightening words. I don't even know evil. Never met her. Never talked to her. No, she can't come into my house. Can you say that? Can you say that evil is a total stranger to you? Can you say that evil is your enemy? Or is it true that evil sometimes is your friend? Does evil ride with you? When you saddle up your horse and are going down the way, is evil with you? Right behind you, clinging around your waist? Or maybe it's reversed, reversed. you're riding with evil. The promised Davidic king never rides with evil. And then we hear something even more shocking. We hear about the king's anger. Even what he won't put up with is right. Verse 5 says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. And we shudder. Because we know those sins, those sins are ones that we have committed, just like David. And so we wonder, is there hope? How is there hope for us as we sing? Slander and pride? This king says, not in my house. No, that's not allowed. And you know, that's, that's hard, isn't it? Christian living in the home has always been the most difficult thing, hasn't it? Oh, you can go out into the world and, and your little sound bites and, and your interactions in the workplace or the marketplace, you can try to clean those up and keep them straight. But at home, you let your hair down and, and you're known for more than just what people see on the outside. This language is strong. This language is not a wish or a hope. Uh, this is not aspirational. You don't have to pass this bill in order to know what's in it. You know, and we know because anger in our lives is most often disordered, isn't it? You think we'd get it, like, you know, we don't know everything because our dog hears things we don't hear. You would just think we would know this natively. We don't get true love right, do we? Much less do we get true anger right. I never like to marry a couple until they've had a a really good fight one with another. You, You need that experience before you go into marriage. Better to do the fighting and get used to and see how it is beforehand rather than after the marriage. We have a hard time with anger. It tends to be knocked over by us on the table. It it tends to run all over the table and then to drip into our lap and splatter on the floor, doesn't it? It wets us and embarrasses us. And then we try to clean it up. The king has anger, but the king's anger is right and proper. And I know this is countercultural, and not politically correct. The king's anger is Good. It's good. And we need to know the king is going to oppose and reject and hate evil. Because otherwise we'll be tempted to think that we have to do all that. And we'll mess it up. (laughs) It's not that heaven and earth depend upon us pulling out our sword and cutting off the ear of that one who threatens Christ and his church. Been there, done that, haven't we? We have a faithfulness to which we are called. But thanks be to God that there's a true king and he leads us in that battle and he himself has his anger under total and proper control. It serves his righteousness and his goodness in the land. And then there's verses 6 and 7, which encourage and help us after a pretty Tough couple of verses. Now we come to a verse that we can get happy about. We hear in verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. The king sings, and he sings of the beauty. He sings of the beautiful. He sings of the faithful in his kingdom. You see, they're the love of his heart. They're his bride. Now, it's not that they're lovely in themselves. They're lovely because they're united to the son of the father's love. The king promises to favor the faithful, to help them, to aid them, and to even be served by them. You know, I can remember when my kids were, our kids were younger. And sometimes wise parenting involves not doing things for the children, but letting the children learn to do things for you and for the family. That's how they learn and grow. And so when you ask them to set the table and you show them how to do it, and then you walk into the other room, you're right. When you come back, everything's kind of mixed up in an angle in the wrong place. But it's a good first step and it's the right thing to do. They will grow. They will conform to what is good under good parenting and influence. And so too in God's house, in God's kingdom, the king lets us serve but only if we are truly his. The king loves the good And that always requires a little polemic. He loves the good and he despises the evil. He hates the evil. Do you do that? I don't mean get all huffed up and stamp your foot and cuss. I mean, do you look at it and go, that's not right. Sometimes you have to say that in your own head and own heart. Because you're in a public circumstance where it's not right for you to say anything. If you don't believe that's a dynamic of adult life, then try try pointing out all the faults of your boss to him and see what happens. That won't last long. Did David always despise evil? The question answers itself, doesn't it? But then we come to the last verse, and our composure is shaken from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Did you hear what it says? We're supposed to sing. David wrote under inspiration, God commands us to sing in his worship. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. That's not what the text says. Now that's a good thing to do, but that's not what this text says. Morning by morning, I will destroy. Now look, I hadn't seen the Oppenheimer movie, but I understand that's kind of a theme from some of the articles and reviews I've been reading. and um, well, that's another story. We'll talk about that later. But now we hear about the king's wrath. I will destroy. When's the last time you woke up in the morning, got your cup of morning, Joe? And, and as you're reading, the paper casually mentioned that to your. Spouse, you know, I will destroy this morning. That's not the way we think or talk usually at the start of the day. But this king is serious. He's serious about governing right. He's serious about doing the right thing. And when the time comes, he will punish the wicked. They will be defeated. And you know what? You and I need to hear that. You and I need to know that. We need to know that, that he wins. And that we win with Him and in Him. That is, that life is not futile. That it's not all without no purpose. And and that there is not everything in all the universe depends upon us. We need to be careful and cautious to follow His word inside and out. And singing this hymn is one way that He conforms us to His image. Oh. It is good news to hear these words. David wrote all these words under inspiration, but David didn't do them. Let me say that again. David never properly, utterly did them. He failed inwardly and outwardly, even though he had great advantages. He was the man after God's own heart most of the time. But only Jesus gets the glory And even one as great as David, he has clay feet and fingers and toes. There are failures in his life that leave us going, He's not the Savior. He's not the King. Who is? Who is the King of glory? If you doubt me, then go ask Uriah the Hittite. Or go ask Uriah's widow. Bathsheba, or go ask one of the thousands upon thousands that were wiped out and slaughtered in the providence of God because of the arrogant census that David took against the word of God in order to puff himself up and to gain more power. David sinned grievously. He was not the promised covenant king. But he was a sign. He was a signpost pointing the way. He was not Houston. But up at that intersection of 20 and 45, he was the sign pointing the way to the great Texas city. And he's the only one that lives up to all those inspired expectations. It's Jesus Christ, David's greater son. Oh, David wrote this Son, this Psalm under inspiration. But of all the people down through the years that have sung it, there's only one who sang it true. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, his singing is true and sure. Now, this is overlooked by so many, even Old Testament exegetes, as they handle this text, but hear me carefully. Did Jesus ever speak a lie? No. Did Jesus ever mislead his people? No. He spoke the gospel in the truth. Did Jesus ever lie to us in worship? No. Everything he said and did were true and sure. And when he sang all 150 of the Psalms, he could sing them in truth because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Who do you think poured out the Holy Spirit? It was the Father and the Son. And so these words are true and sure. And so he sang them true and sure. Here Jesus sang of his inner life. He is the great king. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And he's in perfect harmony with his heavenly Father. In perfect pitch with the Holy Spirit. Never a note off Always right on key. And his communion with the Father and the Spirit was grounded in that Trinitarian relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three possessing the one divine nature or essence. Each one of them is God. And so when Jesus sings, Jesus sings it in absolute truth and conformity. He is in fellowship with his heavenly father and like his heavenly father and he can truly sing the text. And in his work, he sang here of his own great work as our mediator, as our redeemer, and as our king. Then and now and forever, his justice is impeccable. Verses 3 and 4 describe only Jesus in all of human history. Gandhi doesn't live up to the standard. Moses fell short. He was a murderer. Paul was the same. These words are properly only in the mouth of Jesus as the primary singer. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate those who work uh, of those I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I know nothing of evil. Jesus could sing that at the top of his lungs with an absolutely clear conscience. When we sing it, sometimes we're a bit troubled. Because we're afraid. Because we know we don't live up to it. But there is a reason why we can sing. No one can buy or sell that King, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even his frowns, described in verse 5, are in perfect conformity to the law and word and will of God. Slander and pride have no hook in him, he's sinless from the inside out. Verses 6 and 7 he loves the faithful. He loves His bride. He loves His people. He loves His church. The sheep given to Him by His heavenly Father. They're His body. Now look, don't misunderstand. It's not that we're so lovely and therefore He can't but love us. The person you saw in the mirror this morning doesn't look so good so early. And it's that way throughout all of our lives, isn't it? Before we're believers, it's certainly true. After we're believers, what's interesting is is the acne looks bigger then. The imperfections stand out more. The more the Lord sanctifies us after his image, the more disturbed we become over abiding imperfections. That's the curve of the Christian life. That's one reason why as we face our death, we can utter as our last words, God have mercy upon a sinner like me and come Lord Jesus. Because in our last breath, he glorifies us and brings us into perfect conformity to his son. And we will always see him and have fellowship with him forevermore. Never a day of tear and heartache and sadness from that point forward. Oh, He is faithful. He is good. He washes us in His blood. He makes us clean and holy and lovely. And so He loves us. We don't earn our salvation. He earns it. And He gives it to, it, to us and distributes us. Ultimately in every aspect of our life by His grace and His wrath. That disturbing last verse, Morning by morning I will destroy. That's the wrath of the Lamb. The one who has lived for His people and died for His people. He will come with His angels. He will gather the nations together. He will separate them as the sheep and the goats are separated. And He will pronounce blessings upon one and curses upon the other. Now, don't worry according to where you sat this morning. But do worry about that day. Recognize that that day is coming. It's not a parable of the sheep and the goats, it's a snapshot of the future history that you will see, you will feel, you will know, and go through. And everything turns on which side of the aisle you'll be on in that great day. He is the destroyer of worlds. He destroys the world of evil, throws it in the lake of fire. And he destroys our world by transforming it, purifying it, setting all things not just back to what they were in the garden, but better than that, glorious and wonderful. He is good, but he's a dangerous kind of good. He has the scepter of wrath in his hand, And he will smash evil in us and among us by his power. He's not a little pet. He's not a little kitty cat in the house. He's a tiger. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will rule in truth and justice and goodness. And in order to do that and have anybody in his kingdom, it cost him his life. He died for our sins that we might live with Him and sing with Him in worship of the Heavenly Father forever and ever. Amen. Jesus sang this song and He never missed a note. He sang it in perfect conscience, He sang it at the top of His lungs, and ironically, It's only because of him and that singing, his singing, that we can sing this song too. We sing not because these words are about us. We sing because these words are about him. And these words also describe what he is doing for us and to us and in us. We sing with him because he's our brother. He who is the eternal Son of God is taken on flesh and dwells among us. He has come down and He has done everything necessary for our salvation. There's nothing left for us to substantially accomplish because then we would think we were great and it saved ourselves. He's the only Savior, He's the only great King, not ourselves. He is. And we must sing. Not just with him, but also in him. The two become one. Christian marriage is a snapshot in image of Christ and his bride being one. And so we must be one with him. And that means we sing with him, but that means we sing because of him and in relationship to him. And so, believer, you must follow your leader and follow his tune. You can stay on tune with him by his grace, progressively, better and better, more and more each day. Don't quit. But by his grace, word, and spirit, keep on singing. Keep on singing. Keep on singing. And you and I must also sing for him. There's a strange and ironic thing about Christian worship. Jesus says that he's our brother and he sings praise with us. It's like he comes in the sanctuary and sits right there on the front pew with us and joins his voice with us to sing praise to our Heavenly Father together. He's our brother to be able to do that. He touches us in the flesh. We're connected by the umbilical cord. He has a real human life in addition to His divinity and divine person. But He is divine. And so our praise to Him and His praise to Him as mediator is praise to Him because He is the God-man. He is for us and He works in us and He commands And he raises us from the dead. He raises us to life forevermore. And so our singing is of value and importance. And it's transformative. Stay in his word. Let the melody dwell in your heart. Keep on reading. Keep on singing. Keep on praying. Keep on listening to the preaching. The meaning of the word given. See the word in the sacraments. Take it to heart. Long for him. And then you will be conformed to his image and glory. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Look to Jesus in faith and you will have that forevermore. He is the author and the perfecter of your Christian life. Let us pray.